You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. So if we haven't met, my name's Jono, um, as has been said. Uh, I'm a couple of years kind of behind Tom. So in a couple of years' time, I will be Tom, um, but I'm not quite yet. Um, but it's wonderful to be here and able to share and kind of close off this series on prayer. Um, today we're going to be delving into probably the, the more um, tricky topic around prayer, I suppose, the one that makes us maybe ask lots of questions and feel slightly uncomfortable. How do we handle the waiting Like when we pray for stuff, but it doesn't feel like it's happened. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's been heard. Maybe it causes us to doubt. And we're going to be wrestling through some of this stuff together. I can't profess just from the outset that I'm going to give you all the answers perfectly um, today. But I hope that in the next kind of 20 minutes or so that we've got together, we can delve into this a little bit. Not be afraid to ask some of those questions and see what God wants to say to us through it. But I want to begin, especially as there's another priest in the room, um, with a confession. I don't often do this in public, um, but I've got a confession to make. And uh, I'm not sure I've ever actually told this story before, so you're you're the lucky audience. We're going to rewind to um, my days at the beginning of high school. Some of you can maybe remember that. Um, Can anyone remember the beginning of high school? Yeah, maybe-ish. Some of us have erased it from our memories, like I never want to even go back there again. Um, For me, I was invited to a birthday party, and what happens, or certainly did happen for us, when we were in primary school, you'd invite your whole class, and you'd have loads of kids everywhere. As soon as you get to high school, that's not cool anymore, and actually what you do is you do a more expensive party, but for fewer people. Did anyone else do that? So then that's where like the sleepovers start and the Domino's pizza and all that kind of stuff. Because when, you, when you've only got four or five, you can do the really cool stuff. Um, so then, anyway, that, that's what we did. And I got invited to this party where we were going to watch Pirates of the Caribbean at the cinema. This wasn't the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. It was one, I can't even remember, to be honest, one of the sequels. Um, this tells you already, the fact I can't even remember which one it is, tells a bit about where this story's going. So anyway, my, my friends were really excited about Pirates of the Caribbean. I had no idea who anyone was. I knew it was like Jack someone, um, it's Johnny Depp, but I had literally no idea. But because I've been invited to this party, I thought I'd better pretend. I can't be the one that's like, oh, I don't really want to go and see that film because I had no idea what's going on. So as we're in the queue, they're all talking about Pirates of the Caribbean. I was going, oh yeah, he's my favorite. Oh yeah, I remember when that happened in the other film. No idea what was going on. So I sat and we watched this film, and it was a good film. Like, it was, it was fun, it was exciting, there were some bits that were funny. But really, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. And my friends all got out of this and were going, oh, wow, I can't believe it. Oh, it all added up from the previous one. Oh, I remember that happening. I've got absolutely no idea. Anyone else been there? We had a similar one, actually, when we first got married, myself and Amy, where she's an avid Friends fan. So we'd watched all the episodes of Friends about 16 times and can quote, it's quite impressive actually if you ask her about it, she can quote different lines from Friends and tell you exactly who's related to who and what happened when. But I'd only ever seen the random ones that come on Channel 4 every now and again. So I had absolutely no idea who anyone was, who was going out with who, who had history with who. And you watch an episode in isolation and it, it kind of 
nominally entertaining, but it doesn't really make any sense. And I realise, as I've grown in my faith, I've often approached the Bible a little bit like that, particularly with difficult questions, where I can look at something and it's like I've just picked the middle of season five of Friends or the third Pirates of the Caribbean film without watching the others and kind of just expected that this random piece of scripture or this random kind of talk that I listen to with no other context will answer all my questions and that somehow if it doesn't, that either God's not real and I get in this spiral of thinking, oh, well, you know, God heals people in the Bible. So if I pray for healing and it doesn't happen immediately, then, well, either God's not powerful enough to do it or he hasn't heard me or he's not real. And you can get trapped in this kind of really unhelpful cycle of thinking. But actually, when we consider the whole story, when we start at episode one and follow it through, we start to see this wonderful story that God is weaving in and through us. And prayer plays a really crucial part in that. So to help us do this a little bit, we're going to jump in um, to a passage from the book of John. John is one of the four gospels in the Bible, the four accounts of Jesus' life. And John's really interesting in how it's written. It's not written like a story from beginning to end. There's bits that um, are kind of quite poetic. I think bits that I often have to read over and over again to get my head around. But what we see in John is this pattern of Jesus either having made a claim about himself or a claim about, or someone else made a claim about him. Then some kind of miracle or teaching or something extraordinary happens and the people are given a a choice. Am I going to believe it or am I not? And we've seen this happen over and over again in this Gospel of John. And gradually Jesus is building this picture um, and making slightly more outrageous claims about himself. He's doing slightly more spectacular stuff. Um, he's, his disciples are growing. He's becoming more of a celebrity, if you like, in his day. People are starting to take note and hear about him. And it all comes to a kind of climax point in John 10. John chapter 10, where Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. Jesus is literally saying to people, including religious leaders, I am God. And they don't like it. They don't like it. And in the end, they threaten him. They pick up stones and say, we're going to stone you for that. That's a stonable offence. So Jesus and his disciples retreat. We think probably about 20 miles. They go off to um, another part um, of uh, where they'd been spending some time previously. And while this happens, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is really seriously ill. The problem is that Lazarus lives quite close to where Jesus had been threatened. So he's in this weird position where he's like, I need to go and help my friend, but I know if I go there, that's right in the midst of where all these threats have been happening and where this hostility um, is all taking place. And so we're going to pick up the story um, at um, verse 11 of John chapter 11 John 11 11 um no sorry John eleven seventeen. I can't even read my own writing John eleven seventeen. so Jesus has made this decision and he's been summoned and he actually waits two days before then traveling and you've got to remember in those days if you send a message to someone It's going to take a while for it to get there because they've literally got to hand deliver it. So this guy's come and hand delivered Jesus' message saying, your friend is ill. Jesus then takes two days to consider it 
and then sets off to go to his friend. So they reckon it was probably about four days in total between the message being sent out that Lazarus is ill, Jesus, you want to get yourself here, and him actually arriving. So we pick up at verse 17. John eleven seventeen. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the place where Jesus has been threatened. So he's, he's in the danger zone at this point. And many of the Jews from Jerusalem had come to Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I wonder if you've ever been in that place. If you were here, God, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, but I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die. Uh, sorry, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. After she said this, she went back to her. Uh, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary came into the house comforting her, knowing how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, again, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opens the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odour, for he's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up, to the father, looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's a really fascinating story, isn't it? 
And it's one where if we simply just read the title, Jesus heals a dead guy. Sounds great, doesn't it? But actually when we delve in, when we look at the whole picture, when we look at the whole story, we realise it's so much more complicated than that. But there's four things that I want to just give you as encouragements, really. We haven't got time to do any of them in an enormous amount of detail today, but I hope it'll be stuff as well that as you go from here and continue to wrestle with this stuff, maybe read back over the passage and remind yourself of these. The first is this, that God hears us and we can have confidence of that. I've often felt that if I've prayed for something and it's not happened, that somehow either God was busy somewhere else, he's on another line, he's on hold, sorry, can't, can't pick up the phone right now, leave me a message after the beep, yeah? But that isn't the case. And we see this, Jesus himself, doesn't he, when he's, when he's praying, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me. No prayer is ever wasted or goes unheard. And it's amazing actually now how I look back and notice how many of my prayers have been answered in all sorts of different ways. And I think it's more on me that I lose track of that. I'm not very good at keeping a diary or a journal, but I know when I've kept a prayer diary and written down the things that I've prayed for and then look back, you start to see, wow, God's hand is at work in those things. But often because I live my life at a million miles an hour, I pray for something. If it doesn't happen within the 60 seconds after that I've prayed for it, I'm on to the next thing and I just assume that God must have forgotten about it or not heard me because I'm on to the next thing. So I'd really encourage you, God does hear us when we pray. And if you're like me and you live your life at a million miles an hour, why not keep some kind of diary, write down the things that you're praying for, remind yourself of them, keep praying for them. And you know, God can do some amazing stuff while we're in the waiting. God can do amazing things while we're in that period of waiting bringing beauty out of the brokenness that we see. The second thing that I just want to observe in this passage is Jesus' full humanity. Jesus' full humanity, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And often I've got this confused by meaning that like, he's kind of a human but with superpowers, bit like a Marvel guy yeah or he kind of he can blend in as a human but he's not really human because he can do all these amazing things and he's God but actually the amazing thing to get our heads around with this is that Jesus is the most complete human that there has ever been if we want to look at what what a human looks like or should look like we can look at Jesus because he embodies fully human and actually what we experience in our brokenness is actually this distortion of what should be. So actually, when we see Jesus doing stuff, he does that in his full humanity. So we can look at what he does and be reassured. And you know what? I find that incredibly reassuring. We see in this passage that Jesus weeps. The most complete human being there's ever been. The most human of human things. But yet we often consider weakness um, when we we think, I couldn't possibly weep in front of people because actually they might think less of me. (laughs) 
And I don't necessarily think we should just be a weeping mess all the time. Hear me right. But actually there are moments where actually the, it is okay. It is okay. That's not Jesus being some kind of supernatural thing. That's Jesus in his full humanity saying it's okay. When we see Jesus eating and enjoying company with people, when we see him laughing and, um, and people getting frustrated with him, people came to him and said, look, if you'd been here, and that's okay as well. And actually there's something about the full humanity of Jesus when we read passages like this that I find so reassuring. That I don't have to be strong all the time. I don't have to put a brave face on all the time. I don't have to pretend that it's all okay all the time because Jesus himself saw how deeply moved people were at a time of crisis and he wept. Not because he wasn't powerful to change it, not because he didn't have a greater plan, but he didn't come to them and go, well, it'll be all right in the end, won't it, guys? Come on, cheer up. He actually said, no, there's something significant and something that God can do in those moments of vulnerability and weakness. So Jesus is fully human. The third thing is that the final result is not death. I don't know if you noticed that Jesus didn't actually promise in this passage that Lazarus wouldn't die. He didn't actually promise that he wouldn't die. What he said to Martha was, your brother will rise again. And what on earth does he mean by that? Well, actually, we see this picture painted throughout scripture of heaven being a place, not that we kind of ghostly go to on a cloud somewhere, um, like we see in cartoons, but actually it'll be a place where we ourselves are resurrected as Jesus was resurrected and we get to live with him. A new heaven and a new earth. That actually the final result is not death which is again a bonkers thing to say, isn't it? And I imagine the people there would have thought the same. Like this guy's just died and Jesus is saying, well, the final result isn't death. What on earth does he mean by that? I also think it was significant that Jesus actually waited four days to come and see Lazarus. Why wouldn't, you know, if you or I had got a message saying someone's seriously ill, even if they're in a place that feels like it's threatening, we'd probably be like, oh man, I'll drop everything and I'll go. Jesus waited and Lazarus was dead for four days when he arrived. It's been interesting doing a little bit of reading about some of the Jewish culture at the time, where they understood in whatever kind of medical practices that they had, that three days was a really significant point for people after they died. That actually if someone had died in the morning and then by the afternoon someone had come to see them, they'd think, well, we can't, it's possible that they might just be in a, a coma or a really deep sleep or unconscious. And actually, maybe after like half a day, they, they could come back round again. It'd be really surprising. But actually, three days was considered like the tip-off point. That like, once someone's dead for three days, there's no way back. No way back. That is like categorically dead. There's no way back from that. So Jesus waiting four days to go to Lazarus 
There was no suspicion that Lazarus might have just passed out in the tomb and just need a, a kind of some salts or some like cold water on his face or something, and then he'd wake up and it would like he he is dead, dead, dead at that point. And actually, does this remind you of something else that happens? Jesus dies on a cross, is in the tomb for three days, dead. Three days, there's no way back, right? Three days later, he comes back to life himself. This is a way of him saying, like, I can overcome death. Like, death is not the final destination. Death is not a final destination. That actually life in all its fullness with Jesus is the final destination. And that's a hope and a promise that Jesus gives us through this passage. But not every story ends like this, does it? Not everything we pray for comes to pass, even if we have to wait. Um, there have been a few quite significant things um, when people ask me about the most significant parts of my own faith journey. And actually, I often say it's defined my journey by disappointment and bereavement. They're the two reasons that I have faith, <laughs> um, of coming in the midst of those things. Not because of them, but in the midst of them. Actually, it's, for me, it's been in the prayers that have gone unanswered and God speaking to me in the moments of greatest pain and despair that my faith has become real. For those that were at the Encounter Conference a few weeks ago in my seminar, we shared, I shared a little bit of my story. Um, my mum passed away about eight years ago um, from cancer. Um, she was a vicar in the church um, and uh, she lived with cancer for about a year um, before she passed away. And in that time, there was some really significant stuff that I saw happen in her life. Actually, as her health was deteriorating and she knew she was getting closer to the end of her time with us, the way that faith grew, the way that God brought unbelievable beauty from that brokenness in the way that she was able to um, chat with and pray with other people in the hospice as she literally suffered alongside them was something quite incredible. And I also got a brief insight into actually when we feel in that place of suffering, of unanswered prayer, of going, God, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, but it's happened. Like if, you, if you'd heard my prayer when I said, God, would you heal my mum? She would still be here. And I can find myself in this passage saying like, God, Jesus, if you'd been here, things would have been so much different. And actually, I've heard him time and time again saying, actually, John, I, I was there. I was there. I wept with you. I gave you the assurance that death is not the end. And actually, there's been some amazing things that God has taught me in the midst of this kind of brokenness, I suppose. The main one is this, that when I consider suffering often it can feel all-consuming. When we're in a place where we're suffering, it can feel all-consuming like there's no way out. But actually, I believe that Jesus reveals to us an antidote to suffering. Something that can come alongside us when we're suffering and actually take that suffering away. And I believe that is the, the peace of God. And this isn't a peace as in like a goodwill or like 
a kind of reassuring little gust of something that makes us feel a bit better briefly. But actually, we see this a few times um, throughout Scripture, where actually the peace of God comes in a time of trial and challenge. And the circumstances don't always change. It doesn't mean it's not sad. But it means that the actual suffering is removed. And what I discovered with my, the journey of my mum was that she was able to pray for the peace of God in her life. And I remember she said that she wasn't suffering anymore, long before she died. And it was us that were suffering. Probably because I wasn't brave enough to actually pray for the peace of God in that moment. But she said a number of weeks before she died that she wasn't suffering anymore. She was actually having a reasonably nice life in the hospice. She knew she was in her last few weeks. She had fun. She laughed with people. She led people to Jesus. She led a communion in our house just before she went in. Um, that, was, she was like the, that was the completion of her ministry on earth before she went to party with Jesus. And there's something about the peace of God. The Bible talks about it going beyond understanding. It goes beyond our understanding in ways that we can't explain. And when we're filled with that peace, it doesn't, it doesn't always change our circumstances. It doesn't even change our emotions sometimes. But the suffering itself, that kind of seed of suffering that can just become all-consuming and eat us up inside, can be removed by the peace of God. And finally... The other thing that I've learned, I suppose, through my own story and my own journey with this topic is that when we pray, so often I approach prayer as if I'm the one in charge and I give some very specific criteria by which I want God to do things. And if he doesn't do them my way, then he mustn't have heard me. Or he mustn't be strong enough to do it. Or he must hate me. And actually, as I've learned to reorientate my perspective on prayer, it's changed everything. See, in the Lord's Prayer that we've already prayed together today, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Now that tells me a few things. That tells me actually that the earth isn't perfect. Because we're calling down like something of what God, what you desire and what we know it will be like. Can we see glimpses of that here in this broken world? It's like we're, pull, we're longing for God to pull the two things closer together and I believe he does. But ultimately, there's a submission when it comes to prayer. That actually prayer isn't about me. It's about God. And he invites me into that. I don't own the prayer. It's not like I'm the boss and I give God, well, you need to do this for me and then kind of look at my watch and expect him to do it. And if we approach prayer like that, we're going to have our hearts broken time and time and time and time again. But what we find is that when we pray and root it in who God is, then there are opportunities for us to bring our requests to him because he loves us. And sometimes we get exactly what we pray for immediately and it's amazing. Sometimes we wait a while and actually God can teach us loads 
in the waiting. You know, I believe that actually in the, in the waiting and in, the, um, in the, the nature of the way that my mum died actually was pivotal to my call to ordination. You know, I don't know if I'd be training to be a vicar if my mum was still alive. That's the truth. Now, did God cause that for seeing some kind of weird plot twist? I don't think he did. But I think there's an acknowledgement that actually this world isn't as it should be. And God is working to fix that. And we live in this time between the, where heaven will come one day, but we're not quite seeing that yet. And there's some stuff being worked out. But actually he invites us in to partner with him in drawing heaven closer to earth. And actually we see that when we, when we pray rooted in who God is. I wonder when the last time you prayed and didn't ask for anything was. When was the last time you prayed and didn't ask for anything? Interesting question, isn't it? Um, I've started doing, um, I've started doing that every now and again to just pray scripture. Find a passage of scripture. One of the Psalms is a good place to start and just pray it. Amen. God, I'm not coming because I'm asking you for something. I'm just coming to be with you because I love you. The other thing that I found really helpful, um, and we are coming into land at this point, a really practical tool, particularly if you're in this season of waiting or feeling like prayers have been unanswered or been feeling like you've been praying for something for ages and you're just not seeing God in it, is to find something that gives you words when you don't have the words yourself. I find, we find as a family, sorry, that Lectio 365 can be quite good for that. It's like an app that you can have that will kind of produces a daily prayer that you can join in with. And I've actually been using increasingly um, the Compline Night Prayer, um, which is produced by the Church of England. Um, and um, there's, there's some beautiful language within it that I've, I've just learned the kind of discipline of every night, no matter what's happened in the day, no matter whether I've had a brilliant day or a bad day, no matter if my faith is feeling like, you know, Jesus is in the room with me and we're great, or if it feels like Jesus is a million miles away and I don't know what he's doing. Coming back to the consistent same prayer, I find incredibly helpful. There's a line in Compline that says this, Save us, O Lord, while waking, and guard us while sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep may rest in peace. And I find actually every night, engaging in that and saying, God, what, whatever's gone before, however turbulent my day is, however inconsistent life can feel, however inconsistent people around me can be, however inconsistent the world can be, I'm going to pray the same thing. And actually there have been so many times where I've experienced and seen and, and acknowledged God's presence in ways that I, I, can't, I can't even believe um, through prayer. When I find myself without my own words to say, having some prepared for me I find really helpful. 